Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, uh, when Pastor Kyle started uh, teaching um, from uh, First Thessalonians, I don't know, it probably it was his second or third sermon in First Thessalonians, John preached from uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And if you were here, that was, it was absolutely spectacular. Um, uh, his loving presentation of the Paul's words and the sovereignty of God in divine election. And after John preached that sermon, it just sort of stirred me and brought such great no- joy in the knowledge of, of God over all things, including the salvation. And it's that which we then know that we're his forever because it's all through Christ. So I sort of took a journey through the Old Testament and New Testament the following week, just sort of having some fun and looking at some passages that clearly point out the amazing truth of divine election. And one such passage that I've always loved comes from the book of Romans. It's Romans chapter 9. In reading Romans, you can one can tell that there are some natural transitions in that book. Yet, Chapters 9 through 11, there's this three-chapter set there. So 1 through 8, and then starting up again in 12, there's this little block that sits in the middle of three chapters that sort of seem to come in a place that at first glance, it just sort of seems out of place uh, to the flow of the book of Romans in his writing. In these three chapters, Paul diverts from the major theme of justification by faith to focus on the gospel implications for Israel past, present, and future. In fact, if you look at how chapter 8 comes to an end, uh, if you look at how chapter 8 comes to an end with Paul saying, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, depths, nor other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in our Lord Jesus Christ. The natural flow would seem to just go right to the start of chapter 12, where Paul says, therefore, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That would have been seemed smooth. Sure, the flow from 8 to 12 might have been more smooth there, but see, it would have made sense to the reader you would say, hey, once he's finished discussing the the wonders of being in Christ, you would then go to how a believer should live, therefore, or how a believer should respond to being in Christ, therefore. That's not how Paul wrote this letter. See, when Paul finished chapter 8 and the glorious riches of being in Christ, he could not move on to the thoughts that he wanted to get to in chapter 12 until he had dealt with the subject matter of chapters 9 through 11. Paul knew that after those first eight chapters that there would be some questions and objections to what he had written. Why? Because Paul had preached the message of justification by grace through faith to all nations. See, the Old Testament is clear that the Jews were God's chosen people. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But when Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church, most of the Jews were rejecting Christ as their Messiah and many of them also persecuting those like Paul who claimed that Christ was their Messiah. So Paul had sort of a twofold issue here to deal with after he finished writing those first eight chapters at this point in his letter. The first one was 
in light of the Jewish rejection of Christ, he had to answer the question, has God's purpose to bless the Jews failed? And the second question he needed to deal with was this. If God's purpose of the Jews had failed, then how do the Gentiles truly know that his purpose to save them will succeed? That is, how do they know that nothing can separate them, chosen people, in the love of Christ, if in fact the Jews had lost that position? See, it's a difficult chapter in many ways. Romans chapter 9 is one of the strongest statements of the sovereignty of God in the Bible, and many struggle with this doctrine. Why? Because they don't want to deal with the implications in regard to human free will. And so they try to explain away Paul's strong statements. And yet others really get carried away with God's sovereignty. And they end up practically denying any human responsibility whatsoever. But the Bible is clear. Sinners are responsible to repent and believe in Christ. So the flow of of chapter 9 is really seamless And it ties in well with what I was just explaining and what drew me to that after John's preaching from 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. See, starting in in, in verse chapter 9, verse 6, Paul asks the question, has the word of God failed to the nation of Israel? Well, Paul answers it in the next seven verses, 9, 6 through 13. He says, no, because God has always worked through a remnant according to his sovereign choice. As evidence... He brings up and discuss uh, choosing Isaac, and then he brings up and discuss choosing Jacob. Paul then asks in verse 14, so what therefore? Is God unfair in choosing? And he answers that question in verse 15 through 18, where he says, he asserts that God's sovereign has the sovereign right to show mercy to whom he so desires. And to get his point across, he quotes from Exodus what God said, chapter 33, 19 from Exodus, where God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Well, Paul's got this flow going because he's explaining this to both crowds. Paul knew that then this would raise further questions. So in verse 19, he asks, hey, if God is totally sovereign, then how can he find fault with anyone because who could resist his will? But Paul answers this, and I love how he answers this in verses 20 through 24. Basically, in effect, Paul says this, hey, who do you think you are to question the sovereign, perfect, righteous will of the God of the universe whose glorious purpose is far bigger than our little brains can imagine? Well, as you can see, Honestly, Romans chapter 9 is got a whole lot going on. The issue of divine election, human will, God's justice, human blame, God's sovereignty. It is all packed in to this wonderful chapter. Paul makes it clear in Romans 9, being born of Abraham's carnal seed is not enough. One must be born of the promised spiritual seed of Christ. Paul lays out the doctrine of spiritual issue, spiritual Israel, excuse me, and true Israel. That is, not all of the literal nation of Israel are members of the spiritual Israel. It's only those called by God's effectual grace. And who exactly comprises that promised spiritual 
Israel, it's to those who God alone has decided in eternity to be the children of promise. And I love how Paul calls it the spiritual nation in Galatians 6.16. Paul calls it the Israel, the true Israel of God. So chapter 9 shows up just in time by the, by the beautiful planning of the Spirit, just in time for both the nation of Israel, that's natural Israel, to answer the questions that would have come up in the first eight chapters, but also for spiritual Israel, those that were called by grace through faith to Christ to reassure them, to reassure them of God's sovereign plan in choosing them and then glorifying them. So that's the gospel of nine. The promises are purchased by the blood of Christ and will be performed only by the sovereign power of God. But that is not what we're going to focus on. You notice the first thing I brought up is Paul started dealing with the sovereignty of God to the physical nation, national Israel, and to the spiritual Israel, those that were were chosen and called. He didn't start discussing that till verse 6. So there's five verses up front that deal with something else. And that's what I want to talk about today. This is really important because here Paul gives away the absolute heart of evangelism. The absolute heart of evangelism. And he exposes that deep love for Israel. He exposes us to them just before he lays has to lay out the difficult truths that we just discussed. See, With the doctrine of divine election, it can be taken to an extreme where someone just sort of throws up their hands and says, hey, I'm saved. God's going to save who he wants to choose. Therefore, I am just going to focus on my own walk and God will do what he will do. But that's not biblical. That is not that is not the gospel message. It is far from the gospel message and and the Great Commission. And that's why these first five verses to this magnificent chapter are so important. Paul the loving evangelist had a deep passion for the physical nation of Israel, his kinsmen, and the desire that they be saved, be the spiritual nation of Israel. Uh, Ray Steadman, um, I grew up in the South Bay, um, and Ray Steadman was longtime pastor, 40, 45 years at PBC in, in Palo Alto. Awesome preacher. He tells a story of a man who said to his friend, hey, I hear you dismissed your pastor. Why? The man responds, oh, because he told us we were going to hell. Well, what does your new pastor say? He said, well, he says we're going to hell too. Well, so what's the difference? The man replies, well, when the first pastor said it, he sounded like he was glad about it, that people were going to hell. And when the new preacher came and talked about it, it sounded like it was breaking his heart that people were going to hell. See, that's the Apostle Paul. And that's what needs to be in us too. It is never easy for someone to receive hard truths, no matter how necessary they must be. But there is a much better chance that they will hear the important message if it is told in love. And that's what Paul does, in love. So which pastor had the heart of Jesus and and the apostle Paul? Is it the first one that speaks joyfully about those who will receive divine judgment? Or is it the one who weeps at the reality of souls being banished to hell? See, the first one might know the right words, but it's the second one that has the right heart. Have you ever heard the phrase, no one cares how much you know till they know how much you care? Okay. This is the heart of Apostle Paul as he starts Romans 9, which was so critical 
to the understanding for the nation of Israel. My hope is today that we will be challenged by the example of Paul uh, for the lost amongst us. So let's start reading Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at 1 through 3 right now. 9, 1 through 3. Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Wow. Think about this. Paul, he would be willing to be eternally damned if it would result in the salvation of his his countrymen, the Jews. Okay. John Bunyan says this. But John Bunyan says, I often felt while preaching that I could give my own salvation for the hearers of the word. Spurgeon took Bunyan's words a little farther and says, I pity any man that has ever not felt that way. That great sorrow and that great burden for those that are not saved. Again, wow, Paul's words, these great saints Uh, Bunyan and Spurgeon should really make us take pause and think, okay? These verses that Paul wrote that we're looking at today do two things. They reveal the secret of Paul's great effectiveness in evangelizing uh, for Christ. And they also answer an important question. What will it take for those around us to come to Christ? I read a quote, said, the greatest blessing I could ever imagine would be to arrive in heaven surrounded by a great host of people I know and I loved. Okay? So this morning, what I'd like to do is have us look at these essential qualities that Paul displayed in sharing Christ with his countrymen. And the first quality that we see in these first three verses here is love. In verses 1 through 3, Paul displays the evangelistic quality of love. No ever, ever, excuse me, no man will ever begin to seek the lost until he loves them first. Did you hear what I said as I stumbled over my words? No one will ever start to seek the lost until they love the lost. If you don't love them, you won't seek them. They'll be out of your mind. The Jews could say many unkind things about Paul, but they could never say that he did not love them, that he did not have a deep care and compassion for them. In each one of these first three verses, Paul reveals a different aspect of his love for his countrymen. And in verse one, we see that first aspect of love, and it is sincerity. Paul shows his sincerity. His words are very simple yet powerful. I tell you the truth, truth, I am not lying, he says. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Every believer should want their evangelism to be effective, okay? And all effective evangelism must be sincere, honest, and truthful. And all of which will provide the evangelist the one sharing with a platform of integrity. Those things will come together and provide a platform of integrity. Sincerity means what you see is what you get. Honesty refers to your motive. Why are you evangelizing? Truthfulness refers to the content of your words. And then integrity refers to the overall impact of how you live your life for Christ. Non-believers may not know much about Jesus, but I promise you, they can definitely smell a fake a mile away. That's why sincerity is so powerful. And Paul understood this. He knew that many Jews mistrust 
impacted the message of chapters one through eight. That's why Paul came across at the beginning of chapter nine as though he was making an oath, a promise to his readers. He even goes so far to say is that his feelings are confirmed by the Holy Spirit himself. This is the same passion, the same authenticity, and the same sincerity that we must share with those around us. The Barna Group did an extensive research recently amongst 16 to 29-year-olds and concluded the following. This group of people, they say, are expressing more hostility, doubt, frustration, and skepticism towards Christianity. Their perceptions of Christianity are filled with images of judgmentalism, hypocritical lifestyles, insincerity, and political activism. Those surveyed felt that the followers of Jesus, which followers followers of Jesus, Jesus in his Isaiah 9, 6 is called the Prince of Peace. These surveyed said that the followers of Jesus are thought to be unable to live peacefully amongst their community and even have struggles peacefully dealing with one another. The survey concluded one of the most common reactions that young people have about the faith is that present-day Christianity must no longer be as Jesus intended it to be. Okay? I found one of the concluding questions from the survey to be very thought-provoking. The author asked this, What if they are reacting not to our righteous lifestyles, but our self-righteousness? And that's something we need to truly consider with the heart of evangelism for for those around us? I think it's a good question and one must answer. Are we living for righteousness sake or are we just living self-righteously? In verse two, Paul's love for the nation is shown in sorrow. So first it's sincerity and then it's sorrow. And I find the words of William Barclay helpful at this point. He says, Paul begins not with anger, but with sorrow. Not scolding him, but with Sorrow. Sorrow refers to sadness while grief refers to a deep personal pain. Some say that sorrow is an intense inner feeling while grief is the outward expression of it. Okay. Paul was not going to stand by. He was not going to just stand by nonchalantly while his countrymen rejected Christ. He saw their unbelief and it literally just ripped at his heart. Listen to some of the different biblical passages that express this same kind of grief that Paul had. When the psalmist sees the disregard of God's law, he writes in Psalm 119, 136, he says, streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is no longer obeyed. In Matthew 9, 36, we read that Jesus was moved deeply when he saw people in distress. Christ said, the, uh, Matthew 9.36 said, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The burden, they are sheep without a shepherd. Later, when Jesus came to Jerusalem for the final time, he broke down in Luke 19.41. And it says, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Okay, and in Acts 20.19, and then I'm also going to Flick it in with Acts 20, 31. Paul recalls the tears that he shed in Ephesus. Paul says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with great tears. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with many tears. I spent three years day and night warning you with tears. It's tears of sincerity and sorrow for the lost. Question, are we shedding tears for the unsaved? Are we shedding tears for unsaved family, friends, and neighbors? Seriously, I'm, I'm speaking to myself first, okay? 
as it's a difficult question, but we must ask ourselves that. Verse three, we get to the third way that Paul shows his love and that's through sacrifice. Evangelism will have little effect if we do not truly love the lost. And Paul's not talking about loving him from a distance. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Oh, I love the lost and I'll pray that the lost will be saved. I, I will pray for that person. I, I will pray for my, my uncle back in New York. I will, it's not just from a distance, y'all. Praying for him is important. But Paul also knows it's not just from a distance. He's talking about a type of love that sacrifices. And in order to have that love, we have to truly interact with the lost truly interact with them. Look again at verse three. Paul says this, for I could wish I myself were accursed for Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Whoa, that is an absolutely amazing statement. No one ever exalted in knowing Christ like Paul did. He is the man who spoke more than anyone else in the New Testament about being in Christ. Yet he, Paul, would be willing to be separated from Jesus forever if it would help his countrymen be saved. Now, the word Paul uses here when he says accursed is anathema. It's a terrible word. It's one that means I would be condemned to total and utter destruction if my countrymen could be saved. Think of it. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he just finished chapter 8 saying that nothing could separate him from the love of God in Jesus Christ. But in his very next breath, starting off chapter 9, he says he'd be willing to be separated from Christ forever if only his beloved countrymen would come to saving faith. Now, here's the deal. We know that Paul is not writing systematic theology here when he shares that aspect of the heart. That is just the depth and the sorrow and the pain that he feels for what's in store for his countrymen if they don't come to share a saving faith. Paul is just sharing his heart. Paul can't trade spots with a non-believer. You, that's not the sovereignty of God in divine election. We cannot change spots. Why? Because it is God that awoke Paul. The Lord is the one that called him. It's the Lord that by grace through faith saved him. And it is the Lord who one day will bring Paul to him in glory. But Paul grieves he grieves as he thinks of those who are not in Christ and what they face. And with that in mind, it has to, we have to think of it this way. How far are we willing to go to see our friends, our loved ones, and our neighbors come to Jesus? What sacrifices are we willing to make? Does it bother us that people we know are going to hell? Or do we simply prefer not to think about it at all? Because it might be easier, Okay. Paul was saying, I think about you, my countrymen, my loved ones, my brethren. I think about you that are lost. I think about you all the time and it breaks my heart. If I could trade places and go to hell, if only you could be saved, I would do that. Love is the key to evangelism, folks. Sharing, evangelizing, love is absolutely the key. God is love and we only know how to love because he first loved us. Love is the key, a sincere love, a sorrowful love and a sacrificial love. So love is the first and foremost thing that Paul presents here as an evangelist. And the second essential quality that he brings for evangelism is found in verses four and five. And that is having respect. That is having respect for the lost. Let's read uh, Romans 9, 4 and 5. Paul says, who are, Israel, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises? 
of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. See, instead of just absolutely blasting the unbelieving Jews, Paul pauses here after expressing his deep love. He pauses here and talks about the blessings of God to the nation, the physical nation of Israel. And this is a key element of evangelism. Paul, right here, right now, is making a connection point. He is making a connection point to the lost of the physical nation of Israel. Not confrontation with those that do not yet know Christ, but a connection to them. Finding a common ground and a common place. And combining the thoughts of verses 3 and 4, Paul's making a real strong connection. He's saying, my brothers, my own people, the nation of Israel. Okay? He's not trying to flatter them, but rather working hard to create a closeness so they understand that he, he knows where they are and he knows where they're coming from. He wants to create a closeness and he wants to create a common ground. Evangelism needs to have that love and that form of respect that connects. Okay? So Paul deals with this. He tries to establish the common ground of the great advantages and the blessings that, that God gave the Jewish people. Ones that even Paul, even though now he's a believer in Jesus Christ, he shares in common with them as a descendant of Israel. What things does Paul name here that were given to those that were only born of the physical nation of Israel? First one, he says, first, they were Israelites, okay? People chosen by God to belong to him in a special way to be the vessels of his plan for Salvation that would come to the world. Second, he says that they were adopt, they were, there was adoption as sons. This does not mean that the Jews were saved. This word adoption here does not mean that they were saved. Rather, it refers to their adoption as a nation, as a group of whole. Okay? Third, he says that they had the glory. And the glory here refers to the glory of God being displayed in their midst. The Old Testament, it's totally laid out in the Old Testament, that glory. Numerous occasions in the book of Exodus and 1 Kings, it, it, it defines and lists the occasions of his God's glory being displayed physically amongst the people. Fourth, they had the, the covenants that God had made with, with Abraham, with Moses, with, with David, perhaps even the new covenant to those that would become the true spiritual seed of Israel. Okay, God did not enter into such covenants with anyone else, that which he had done with Abraham and, and Moses and with David. Fifth, they received the law, Exodus 20, which told them how to live in a manner pleasing to God. Sixth, Paul says, for their, their common bond and the blessing upon Israel is that they received the pattern of, of temple service. That means God revealed various feasts, sacrifices, that Israel was to observe. Seventh, he, seven, he says that they received God's promises. And this covers all of God's covenant blessings to the physical nation of Israel. Eighth, he says that they were descendants from the fathers of the Jewish faith. That's your Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the tribes, okay? And the final privilege that he brings up here, of course, for the apostle Paul, this is the pinnacle of it all. The final privilege is the most essential element of all of Paul's writings. And he says the final privilege is Christ. The final privilege is Christ. Last part of verse five, Paul says, Jesus, who is over all the eternally blessed God. 
I like how the NS, I like how the uh, NASB says it. Listen to how they finish verse five. And from them, Israel, is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. The greatest privilege that that physical nation had was that the Messiah was born of the son of David. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was Jewish. He was of the tribe of Judah, born according to the law that fulfilled the prophecy. If Christ was not a Jew, he would not fulfill prophecy. He therefore could not be the Messiah. But how could Paul tell them here? How could Paul make the bold statement, Christ, of your bloodline, the greatest privilege, Christ, the eternal blessed God or Lord over all? Again, the only reason Paul can make that claim is prophecy. Jesus is both God and man. According to his human nature, he came from the line of Jews. And we see this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And according to his divine nature, he himself is from eternity. 100% man, 100% divine God. Listen to what John 1, 1 through 3 says. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So Paul makes it clear. Christ is the promised Messiah, God over all. And what a blessing that the Messiah has come through your family line. See, the gospel is not believe in Jesus however you may conceive him. Rather, it's believe in the Lord Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture. Okay, who is eternal God in the flesh, who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins and who was bodily raised from the dead so that we may one day be raised spiritually to be with him in glory. Hey, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in, in, in Jesus, but their Jesus is not the eternal son of God. Okay? Salvation depends upon believing in Jesus as Lord, which means he is God in the flesh. So here in the first, <clears throat> excuse me, here in the first five verses of a, of a really, really important uh, chapter in the Bible, the Apostle Paul shows us important uh, principles for evangelism. And I loved it. What Tom's little segue there about evangelism. What did he say that he needs to be working on with his people? Was anyone listening? The word was evangelism. Okay, it was. It was, hey, you've been given this, you've been blessed, you've been called, you've been awakened, you've been drawn, you've been saved, you're being sanctified. Now what? Evangelize. And Paul here is the perfect model of this, okay? The Apostle Paul shows us the principles. That is, you reach more people for Jesus through a love and connection by being positive rather than negative. Let's be real. How effective do you think you can be arguing someone to the kingdom of heaven, okay? It's important. There's an old saying, um, I'll probably misquote it. You can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. Is that right? Yeah, old saying, okay. Okay, if we remember Paul's approach, our evangelism will be more effective, okay? Paul started by sharing his broken heart with people. Do the lost around you know your broken heart for them? No one can read these words and doubt his love for his Jewish brothers and sisters. Were they sinners? Yep. Had they rejected Christ? Oh, yeah. Were they guilty? Yep. Did they efface eternal judgment? 100%. 
But Paul did not stop, start there. He began by sharing his great love and his great respect for them. Okay, that means Paul starts with the good news. Bad news is going to come later. Okay, if Paul started with the bad news, how many of them would have been around to hear his heart? Okay, so in order to help us ponder this, there's a few implications uh, with these verses I would like to discuss as we finish. It's not going to be on the screen, but it, I think it's in your bulletin. Okay, the first one, and this, it always starts with me. So whenever I ask a question here, might seem rhetorical, it starts with me. Are you concerned that people are going to hell? I know sometimes it can be, I can be a little straightforward, but I'm very serious. Be real. We don't sorrow. We don't grieve and we don't agonize over this reality like Paul did. Okay. If I'm totally honest and I am right now, (laughs) I should be all the time. It seems as if in my early days in Christ, and I remember this so vividly, just like it was yesterday. It seems like in my early days of Christ, I was much more concerned about the realities of hell. I had a super duper great awareness of the wrath that I had just been pardoned from. I mean, seriously, it was vivid what I had just been saved from. I knew what I I had just been saved from, and I did not want anyone at all to face that future. See, I now have a greater knowledge of the Lord by far than I did then. But I'm serious, through a lot of pain and true self-reflection, my heart tells me that at times today, I don't agonize as I once did about the realities of hell. I know I'm saved, but the realities of hell agonized Paul for the loss. In thinking about evangelism or the lack of it that takes place here in America, I wonder what the cause is. Is it because we're too busy? Is it because we don't contemplate the realities of hell for the lost? Jonathan Edwards, 55th resolution said this, resolve to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. Do we not share because it's, it's because we're filled with our, with our own concerns and we don't have time for anyone else? Or is it because we just don't want to offend someone or possibly get put on the spot? Those are questions we must deal with with our call to evangelism. Second one, are you burdened over unsaved uh, friends and family members? Paul considered the Jews his own family. He wept over them. He prayed over them. He agonized over them. Talking to me first. When was the last time we wept over friends who don't know Jesus? I mean wept over friends, not just, you know what I'm saying. What about the members of our own family? Spurgeon tells a great story dealing with this, the heart for saving family members. Spurgeon tells this story. He said, a sick girl approached her pastor with thoughts about her own funeral. She spoke of her father, who was an unbeliever and who had never accepted an invitation from her to go to church or to listen to her ever talk about Jesus. The girl asked the pastor, pastor, will you bury me? She asked, my father will have to come to the funeral and he will hear you speak. Please speak it clearly. I've prayed for him a long time, and I know God will save him. According to Spurgeon, the father came to the daughter's funeral. He was convicted and converted to saving faith. In the end, that girl's greatest concern was not her health, but it was the salvation of her father. That's love. She could have been filled with endless emotions based on her own unfortunate condition, but her heart was set upon the love of her Savior and set upon the love of her unsaved father. 
That was her greatest concern. Third, are you concerned for the unsaved who may be your adversaries? The unsaved who are your adversaries. Does that sound strange? Well, it really shouldn't. Jesus himself in Matthew 4, 5, 44 says, love your enemies. And when he hung on the cross, his words were a prayer of forgiveness. Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. For many of the Jews, Paul was 100% their enemy. As we learned in our study of the book of Acts, they hated him. They followed him town to town, stirring up animosity and opposition. But Paul said concerning his enemies, I would be ready to go to hell if I could, only that my Jewish brothers and sisters could be saved. That's a statement that should pierce the soul of every single Christian. How do we feel about those who actually may hate us? Hopefully we don't just wish that God will smite them and that they would be out of our lives. Because the unfortunate reality is that's exactly what will happen someday if they do not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. How will we feel then? Will we rejoice that our enemies are being tormented in hell? I hope not. I hope not. My final question, this isn't in your outline. Do you grieve over your, do you grieve over your own, the state of your own soul? This morning, we've been looking at Paul, the evangelist, his concern for the salvation of others. But I want to close with asking this question. What about your own soul? Where do you stand in relationship to Jesus Christ? If in discussing concerns for others, we ignore the most basic and important issue of all, we would be amiss here. So let me ask the question. This is very straightforward. How about your heart? Who do you say that Jesus is. All that Paul wrote in the book of Romans is meant to lead a person into a right relationship with God through Jesus, saving faith in Jesus Christ. But the teaching of this book will do no good unless it is personally applied to a person's life, starting with salvation. Truth, even the greatest truth in the world, benefits nothing unless something is done about it. Okay? There are three groups of people out there. Believers, non-believers, and make-believers. Okay, everyone falls into one of those groups. Have you personally put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Can you say, Jesus is the Christ and he is the Lord of my life? Hey, you may be extremely religious like the Jews of Paul's day, but that is not the question. The question is, where do you stand in relation with Jesus Christ? There is nothing in this universe that matters more than knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, the book of Romans is a blessing. Lord, your ministry through your word is incredible. May we cherish it, Lord, not just for knowledge's sake, Lord, but for it to be that sanctifying material that comes in that our spirit takes and applies in our lives, Lord. For those that don't know Christ as Savior, Heavenly Father, I pray that through your spirit, Lord, you would draw them to the reality of the love of Christ and the true need for forgiveness to the righteous, loving God. And Lord, for those that know Christ as Savior, Heavenly Father, I pray that these words of Paul will stir our hearts. 
Lord, that we won't just be focused on our, our own lives, our own days. And Lord, even though our sanctification is, is very important, that Lord, we will truly look around. They will contemplate the realities of hell and, and what, what, it, what the future holds for so many people. May we truly think about Paul's heart, what it is to weep, what it is to show love, Lord, that is, is truly sincere, sorrowful, and sacrificial. Lord, may Faith Community Church truly be the bright light that speaks truth, that not only loves one another, but loves the lost with a desire to see them saved. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.